Come on, Freddy's Kitchen in Station Street for a coffee and something nice to eat. Yeah, the pizzas are great. In fact, all the food rates down at Freddy's Caram Station Street. Come on, come on, come on, down to Freddy's now. Come on, come on, come on, down to Freddy's now. It's a pizza. It's a mystic pizza. I'm Ilana Rasbash, and this is Radio Architecture. Good evening from beautiful Bunurong country. We are broadcasting to you live from the Karam Karam Swamp on unceded Eastern Kulin Nation land. My conversation partner tonight is Savannah, is Savannah Vegman, a stage designer, maker and writer working across theatre, opera and dance. She is New Zealand born of Chinese, Malaysian and Dutch descent and is now based on unceded Wiradjuri land in, in Nam, Melbourne where she is dialing in from on the phone line tonight. Recent performance design credits include set and costume design for Biographica by Lyric Opera at TheatreWorks and set and costume design for Brittany and the Mannequins at Fever 103 Theatre, which was Green Room Award nominated for Best Set and Costume Design in 2022. Savannah has also completed assistant stage management roles for the Invisible Opera at Rising Festival and My Dreamworthy Darling at the Ramble at the Malthouse Theatre. She was co-founder of Strange Kit Performance Collective and completed her Bachelor of Arts at Monash University's Centre for Theatre and Performance alongside studies in literature and digital humanities. Very excited to have Savannah on the program this evening and venture with me into the wonderful, creative and really magical fantasy worlds that she designs and brings to life. And if you have any any questions or would like to join the conversation this evening, as always, you can text us on the phone line on 0493 213 831. And if you miss that number, just hit contact us on Instagram, which is at Radio Architecture. Savannah. Welcome to the program. Hello. So great to be here. Thank you for having me, Alana. It's a pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure. Well, the first question I like to ask all my guests on this program is what's your earliest memory of a building or place? I think my earliest memory would have been my childhood home um, and it was this strange pale pink concrete building in New Zealand and I just remember everything felt humongous because I was a very small person as, as a baby. Um, so you were tiny. And <laughs> I was very tiny and I just remember there was like a big staircase and like massive long tall trees and there was a weird like balcony section that was really high up. I think it was about I think it must have been like four stories high or something. It was like quite a big quite a big house um come to think of it um but that's my earliest memory of it just being pink pale concrete and a lot of rooms and this beautiful carpet staircase that we slid down a lot (laughs) 
did as you grew, did, did the scale of that memory change at all or it's forever really big in your mind? It kind of still exists in this ether of like the childhood home because I only lived there till I was like about seven years old. So <laughs> in my brain, it still exists in that big state. And I've visited the outside a few times since, but um, yeah, it still very much exists at this like childhood dream house. <laughs> I'm really interested interested in that idea of the childhood dream house and exaggerated proportions because that's what you try to do with your theatre design, really. Mm, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's funny. Sometimes when I describe to people, it, it, it does feel like architecture but for fantasy <laughs> or world building is kind of a term that I often am drawn to um, in the way that, yeah, we create rules and patterns and, and shapes and things for for fantasy worlds and for stories and and we tell the story through the different elements of the space so well, yeah I love the dream space. rules mm. and patterns say more about that um it's it's a it's about creating languages I think and and visual languages and so I like to use rules and patterns and that you you set up conventions for for each world and I sort of like a description of a dystopian world because that's it's in its most exaggerated forms as a sci-fi writer someone like Ursula Le Guin has to really set like the boundaries of her world right she has to be like so this is the rules of of the weather and this is the rules of the um this is what the houses look like this is like the color palette of what they wear and she surrounds herself in like the sensory experience of that um without rules so, it's limitless isn't it exactly and which is amazing and, and the place that we have to begin. Um, but you sort of have to create restrictions and patterns and rules in order to know when to break them and when the right, the right time is to break them and, and when that actually is um, the direction it's going. Um, so, yeah, you set up the patterns in order to break them. I think that's a, rules a pretty interesting re- way to work. Rules are made to be broken, right, as the great exactly. mantra goes. Yeah. But, how much of a brief do you get sometimes? Is it often incredibly open for you or it's quite st- structured in what is being expected of you in the scenery? So it really depends um, on the project, uh, mainly working with um, with theatre and dance. It's, it's, it's really interesting. Dance, I feel like, is a lot more conceptual because it's, it's an expression of the body. So in terms of the brief, um, the main choreographer I work with, Amelia O'Leary, she um, she will explain kind of the story that she's trying to tell. And naturally she's drawn to really um, kind of sensory and atmospheric words and really mythic kind of archetypes. And so with dance, all I bounce off is like is her words and her like imagery that she's trying to build and the stories that she's trying to tell. And that's incredibly um, conceptual still because the body in, in, in the way it tells the story is very um, expressive and can be read multiple ways. As for theatre, you have a script most of the time, unless it's a devised piece of theatre, which means that it's kind of improvised throughout the process. But if it's, if it's a written script and we get that at the start, I, I, kind of, I kind of read the brief and read the script and then a meeting with the director would be probably soon after that to just discuss what direction the director's wanting to go into. Um, and that's pretty much the brief. The brief uh, in my interpretation is 
um, what text or what materials am I working with to bounce off? Is there anything or are we starting from scratch with like a concept or an idea? Um, and yeah, what, what do the people in play in terms of the collaboration and what, what, what do they see the work becoming and how am I part of that? is sort of what I bounce off. I just want, I was just about to ask, it sounds incredibly collaborative and there's a lot of people involved, a lot of ideas. How big are some of the teams you're working with? Um, the teams that I've worked with are really vary um, on project to project. In the independent world, they're quite small because um, there's only so much money to pay artists um, in the industry. So in terms of the creative team, there'll be a director, um, there'll be me, set designer, and usually set and costumer bunched in together. So that's under the title of production design. Um, we'll have a lighting designer, a sound designer, um, and sometimes an AV designer. Um, and so they're the main creators. And then you have like the, the cast and management as well, which are part of that. Sometimes within that you could have specific people allocated to jobs. So sometimes if we have the budget for it, you'll have like a wardrobe maker or supervisor within that. Um, and I'm the associate designer on a bigger project now, which I'm working kind of in a workroom with lots of different people sewing and making. So, um, yeah, it really depends on, on the project and the size of the project and also the budget of the project and, and where the funds are all allocated to. Oh, wow, that's incredibly exciting. Can you share with listeners what this larger project is? Yeah, so um, I'm the associate designer on a Victorian opera show, which mm -hmm. is um, going to go on in February. It's called Candide. Incredible. The incredible text by Voltaire. Um, and it's also a, a Leonard Bernstein um, composed the music for it. Um, and yeah, so it's an updated version of the, that script and it's just, it's, it's really exciting. Um, it's just a very bold aesthetic that we're going for. And, um, and it's exciting to do that with a company like Victorian Opera because we're so used to doing like being super resourceful and, and kind of weaving the kind of poor theater aesthetic into our independent work just out of necessity. <laughs> But now it's fun to be like, this is a Victorian office show and we're going to make it look so handmade and so beautifully like touched and um, that process uh, of of making is going to be really uh, obvious and, and visible and meant to be as part of the world of that of that script. So, yeah. Huge congratulations. Having... I can't wait to Thank get you. tickets to that one. That is incredibly, incredibly exciting. Thanks. Yeah, it's going to be great. How long does such a big project take? Um, I'm still learning in terms of these big projects, but um, it really varies from company to company and how much um, how much they budget and also, I guess, value different um, parts of the design. And also if it's a company like uh, Melbourne Theatre Company, they work to different timelines again because uh, usually the design process for that will start I think it's at least three or four months out. Like it's quite, it's quite a substantial amount of time. Um, so the pre-production is, 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 is very ahead. Things like the set plans need to be sent to people to get quoted and costed. Um, samples need to be collected for the costumes. It's yeah, it's a process that needs to kind of the design process is a process in itself where the design will go away and 
create all the designs and the drawings and the renders and then and the plans and then that sort of all gets approved I guess in bigger companies and in the the theatre you do a kind of a design presentation and present it to the team Uh, yeah so it really varies and then on other projects I've had I've had a week to design things where you just jump straight into the deep end and I'm like yes I'll do this covering for another designer or different situations happen and yeah just working under pressure (laughs) oh my goodness it's absolutely wild for me to think about the timelines of your universe and I guess Mm. at the same time because these worlds are somewhat temporary that in architecture for us to bring a building into existence it's years years in the Mm. making even for a small house and then you're saying three to four months is a long lead time yeah yeah four months is like you have so much time it's like it's if you have time for that um that exploration and that play, I think. And that's what's lovely about working at, at bigger companies with more resources is that you have that time, whereas independent theatre doesn't quite work like that because often to make ends meet or to just take as much work as we can get, it's like you just have to work with the different overlapping timelines of different projects. And so I think I counted how many shows I worked on both as a mix of designer and also associate designer I think it came down to like seven this year which was just a lot and I guess that goes to show of like seven across the whole year and and each sort of varying in terms of time and and length and yeah you just kind of have to switch you just have to like juggle all the balls and switch between them and um it's an incredible accomplishment. Mm. We just had a text message c- come in from Anonymous. They didn't give their name. And they're asking, how do you get your ideas and inspiration for your designs? That's a great question. I think inspiration and ideas is is an incredibly personal thing. And whilst there's so much collaboration in pro- in different processes and with different people like I will often be inspired by a a director, hopefully, in the way that they see the story and things like that. But um, I have I have kind of key artists and and visual references that I keep returning to. Um, Artists like uh, Leonora Carrington, a surrealist painter, Um, even poets like Clarice Lispector. I, I look to literature a lot to kind of paint imagery for me that I can't quite see because then it's not as prescriptive. Um, who, who are the artists? Uh, Louise Bourgeois I love. Um, and then in, for costuming, I, I look to um, oh, I love Vivian Westwood and John Galliano and just really incredible like fashion designers that I like. I just collected references from everywhere. My references are really, really broad. Um, and I think, yeah, the inspiration just comes from like following the breadcrumbs. And I think surrounding myself in, in the worlds that uh, jump out to me in, in the text or in, in, in a brief. Um, and then the most important thing after all that is like, yes, you have your kind of right or die references or people that you're drawn to or images and styles and aesthetics. And to know that is one thing, but then to like follow your instinct in in responding to those or knowing what's kind of jumping out at me and uh, curating from those references is really important, I think. And to know yeah. where to deviate, know what rules to break, as you said, in that framework you're creating for yourself. Exactly, because you're not 
you're you're borrowing languages from other things, right? And from other mediums. And I think that's when it gets the most exciting because designing in this way to me is like this multimodal, multi-formal thing that has no has no boundaries because it can incorporate anything. Um, I'm really inspired by like fashion photography. So the work of uh, Tim Walker and Shona Heath, I'm really inspired by at the moment. And the kind of things that you can execute in a photograph, I'm like in awe of the way that the fisheye lens can distort things. And I'm just like, how, how could this be done in the theater? And the impossibility of that and the impossibility of, of the, things that you can do that or you can't do that are live um is exciting to me and i think that's uh the the restrictions kind of open up new gateways for things the theater also so amazingly defies all our expectations and laws of what's possible um mm. there's a somewhat facetious joke in architecture how you're going to hold that up or oh, on sky hooks well in theater <laughs> you actually have sky hooks Yes. <laughs> we, our texture is followed up with, have you ever been inspired by any particular iconic buildings or structure? I think maybe they're wondering oh, yeah. if, if, you, if you brought architecture into your world. I think recently I've been thinking a lot about it. And when I first started, I avoided working with wood like the plague because I just, I didn't, I don't know carpentry. I don't have carpentry skills. I haven't used a drill much well by that point I hadn't so I really tried to move away from that and so the kind of harsh structures of like building walls and flats and like buildings uh, is quite terrifying to me and I think my approach to that is 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 thinking about other ways to create and to shape a space so if I wanted to create a wall I could use that with a piece of fabric and then that piece of fabric is is more fluid and can um, react in different ways and it's thinking about how the space can be activated by these things and walls to me have always felt a bit claustrophobic um, and I always I used to say like oh I'll, I'll never do a room play <laughs> which in kind of I say to my friends like a room play is like a, maybe an Anton Chekhov play and he was a playwright that wrote and everything is set in like a, a dining room and and it's very meticulously decided how that dining room is like situated and has a couch and all the things. It's very realist and very natural. It's something like a film set. And to me, that's not super interesting. Um, but I, I'm inspired by architecture in that I love like the weird Gothic buildings of Melbourne. Like I still, I adore that there are faces on the buildings in Carlton and just the strange details of, of things next to like a really contemporary building. And I, I'm trying to notice the urban environment a lot more um, as I get more comfortable with working with like actual structures and wood and things like that. Yeah. Especially all the ornament and decoration around buildings. It's like the costume of a, of a yeah, building. Yeah, exactly. And I just love like that's the process of design as well in a simplified form where we're creating beautiful things and beautiful spaces like even if it's not meant to be beautiful in some way it I think it needs to be like beautiful to the eye as in like a you can look at a a video still and be like that's a beautiful framing you know it it needs to kind of exist in that in that space of of um aesthetic beauty I think 
and to notice the flounces on things and to notice like, oh, okay, this garment has like flounces here and a flounce could be anything, but it's like an adornment. And uh, I just, I love that. I love that part of my job is noticing how things have been adorned by different people and someone has decided that this goes here and not here. Um, and it's the, it's the, it's the joyfulness of creating those decisions that I think lead to, lead to a design. And when something is, is formed, you're like, someone has designed this. Yeah. There's such a beauty as well in defying the impossibility of something. Mm. That's quite a natural human reaction, especially if you make something super complicated or unnatural or bound by gravity, look weightless and seamless and sleek. Mm. Yeah, that's so fascinating to think about and, and to think about buildings because they are they are the polar opposite to a theatre set. They are the opposite of ephemerality. They are there to exist and they are there to um, be lived in and to be lived around. And it's worn and you can see the, the, the rain on the buildings. And it's like, it's also about noticing texture, I think, as I've learned more about this craft. It's about noticing, okay, so naturally the rain hits the building here and then darkens here because that's where the rain has like kind of has gone through the most and and it's like noticing those details that are realistically like how a building is worn over time and I love that stuff like I love looking at um Piranesi pictures of like the ruins you know it's just that stuff I love and there's so much to to there's so much inspiration in that for me yeah I mean, in many ways, those neoclassical follies, like a fake ruin in the in the yard somewhere, was the first kind of theatre set. And then the seventeenth, mm. eighteenth century um, theatre sets that started experimenting with a faked perspective, mm. so creating whole cities and whole distances in um, in two three point perspective. Yeah, have you ever faked the worlds or created these illusions in in your work? I probably have, but not as consciously because I don't come from a drawing background. Um, I think I, I fake perspective in my <laughs> in my roundabout way of like figuring out scale. <laughs> so I'm not I'm not really good with scale yet because I haven't um, I don't know I haven't spent enough time learning about like model making yet, um, but. I think with scaling, I'm always interested in like, what is the most wrong size that something can be? Mm. <laughs> so with my set for Brittany and the Mannequins, I decided to put this massive rib cage on the stage. <laughs> and um, that just came from this idea that like, who, who creates the rules that things and bodies need to exist as like, the, like what if a body was a stage? Like, or what if the stage was a body, like kind of flipping and inverting the rules around how we see objects and associate objects with a, t a certain scale and, um, and playing with that. I think that's one of the key um, parts of my process is, is really thinking about, um, yeah, what's the big gesture here and how is that subverting something about how we regularly understand space? Mm. what's the big and, gesture what's the big idea yeah and then hopefully for actors that populate that space and help tell whatever story we're telling they they we dictate the shape of their movement and how they feel in that space hopefully 
a good design should do that in the way that like a certain design might make you feel claustrophobic or um, a set that I did for um, a, a work called Climbers, uh, which was shown at 45 downstairs. I made these massive grids that were ladder frames that were climbable because the script included these like climbable structures. It was about, um, it was about parkour uni students that lived in, um, in the UK and they would scale the buildings. Um, I think it was back in the thirties. Yeah. In the, in the 1930s and based on a yeah. true story. It was based on a true story, yeah. Um, the writer Ellie Darcy had written it based on a handbook that a student had written that had guides on how to actually climb. It was like the night climbers on how to climb certain buildings in in the different universities. And um, it was like, it was not allowed, but people did it anyway. It was that kind of, their kind of rebellion, their nighttime rebellion. Um Perfect. And that was a lot of fun to work on just because it was like, okay, I'm making a climbable set. <laughs> How do I do that? And and in that way, the actors' bodies had to feel that tension. It had to look epic and feel epic so that they could literally feel like they were scaling a massive gothic church. <laughs> and that was exciting, yeah. To, to make the, the actors embrace that energy that, that is yeah. captured in the script. I'm loving this because it's sort of coming all very full circle for me in terms of the ideas that we've been discussing on this program. And people may wonder, well, what does theatre design have to do with architecture? In many ways, absolutely everything. You do Mm. all the same things that architects do. You're exploring many of these same ideas that have continuously come up on this program in our conversation. Many architects Mm. indeed do theatre design as well and do stage Mm. design. And we've had an episode on parkour. Wow, there you go. In, in, in an earlier moment on the program. So it's all, I love these threads. I love when it, uh, the, it circles back and the, and the stories circle back. Mm. You mentioned that you like things to be fluid. You don't so much like walls uh, from your earlier resistance to carpentry. Mm. And your, that influence of surrealism, especially in playing with scale as well, is, mm. is very clear for me in your work as you like everything to be fluid and droopy and melting. Mm. Mm, yeah a big inspiration uh comes from a french filmmaker called Bertrand Mandico and he's got a bunch of shorts on Mubi if you want to check them out um but his aesthetic is is so visceral I find those materials like they have kind of a a visceralness to them and that they feel organic but they're not and there's a strangeness or an uncanniness to those qualities and I find that I find like a lot of joy in kind of crafting those and making them um, look crafted. I think that's why walls aren't that interesting to me because people understand what a wall is. We are surrounded by walls. It's a flat thing. Whereas something that is more visceral in this way um, to me is, is interesting because it's like, what is this? Um, unknown substance or thing that can be many things and can be shaped in many ways and um and yeah that the environments that incorporate those kind of elements or organic elements really uh interesting to me this may be a bit of a controversial question but do you think there's a difference between craft and design 
That's a really, really good question. To me, they are inseparable. In my definition of, of how I do things, they are inseparable. I, I, I worry about, in indie theatre, everything is so touched and everything is so um, crafted in the way that, like, I want to make this and I want to paint this and dye this and I want to add layers of 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 handiwork on top of it and I want this to look like it's been loved and made um and I worry that when there's other people doing that for you I, I will maybe miss out on that process and, and the craft won't be part of my process but I I don't I don't want that to happen um but I think I think at least in the theatre world where it is ephemeral I find it silly to be persuading people otherwise <laughs> and it's almost like I want to lean into the artifice of that theatrical the theatrical world like the reason why I haven't really gone down into like film yet is because I, I'm not super interested in the naturalistic spaces and the naturalistic objects I, I'm interested in the dream objects and the dream spaces and um, the surrealism that comes into that and I think theatre as a form allows for us to play and push everything to a heightened, more stylized version. And, and that's where you can start to like lose, um, lose the lines between what uh, a set, a prop and a costume is. I think that's what's exciting about mm. this opera I'm working on right now is that everything can be architecture. A costume is architecture and, and a set can be a costume. Like it's like it's playing with what an image and the objects within an image are seen as and who's to say um, a person can't be a mountain you know like a costume that can be a mountain like it's silly but it's bold and it's different and it's um that's what's interesting yeah in, in my experience as a viewer I found that really good set design creates this amazing moment for the audience where you completely believe that it's real and at mm. the same time you know that it's absolutely fake and it's a set and you can see some of this sort of more fantastical and magical elements of it and you can hold space for those two truths at once and it mm. sort of teaches us to sit in that moment as the audience definitely I love that I think it's the yeah it's suspension of disbelief and the idea that in entering these like fantasy worlds yeah you just you meet these stories with such authenticity and and that's what it all is like we're crafting a world and crafting that imaginary space around that story and not to say that we're creating every single imaginary element like I think the audience play a huge part in meeting that imagination halfway you know and 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 seeing and and dreaming halfway to that world that we've dreamt you know we've thought oh yeah they have these earrings because I don't know they got given them to their mother and then they lost them and then they found them and, you know, they're wearing them and they never take them off. Like we, we have that story um, and maybe people don't think about it as much as we do because we like musing on it. But, yeah, I think there's a real beauty in, in experiencing the story like that, yeah. We've had another text message come in. What, in your opinion, leaves the biggest impression on the audience during performances? Lights, sound, decorative elements, costumes, et cetera. 
Well, I always think that in theatre works, you don't really remember what people say. You remember the images and you remember if you were struck, absolutely awestruck by an image or felt a rush of euphoria in experiencing something or um, seeing an actor transform or a performer just absolutely wield the space. Um, That's so I, true. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm aware when a, a someone's stage presence is in absolute control and that's pretty magical to me. So it, I think, and I think that works with a combination of those elements. I think that the best works and, and when, audience, when audiences are like really engaging with it is when everything and all of those elements are working in synchronicity with each other and they are all speaking that same language. Like a really well-oiled machine, like any well-drilled, well-collaborating team. Exactly, yeah. Do you have any big ideas or something you're visualising that's really close to your heart that you hope to be able to make real one day in in theatre and set design that you'd be comfortable sharing? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I feel like I'm always filled with so, so many ideas and they're often stuck in the development stage, unfortunately. Um, but I, I kind of dream of a space where um, things can be really, really stylized and visual, and there can be this element of 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 play within it. Oftentimes, in theatre processes, you get a week with to like install the set, rehearse, do dress rehearsals, and then it's open. And I sort of dream of a space where like that space can be created and and they're, they're, that can still be a curious space. It doesn't need to be finalized and it can it can involve collaboration even in its like in in that lived inness or something. Mm-hmm. Um, just to add another layer of like surprises in the design process, I think I think inviting actors or actors and creatives into that space would be really interesting. But in terms of my own work, uh, I'm a writer as well, and I've been working on this cowboy script for a while since uni. It's um, it's a bunch of femme figures in in a desert or in multiple deserts, and they're kind of stuck, uh, searching and 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 looking and waiting, and they're all mirages of each other in a way, and it's very. It's um, it's very poetic, but also um, strangely structured like a labyrinth and also incredibly camp. They're all like dressing up as cowboys and like kind of it's an investigation into the into the cowboy archetype. But at the same time, it's also an investigation into like glamour and excess and superficiality and, and kind of uh, opulence of of femininity, I think. And the attraction to that, but also my like aversion to that and that interplay of the two. And I'm interested in bringing um, live cinema into that uh, as well as a form. I'm interested in cine theatre that um, is able to frame smaller moments and objects in the space and and becomes kind of a, a mix of of cinema and theatre, which is is a scary space as well, because Pretty I know tell. a lot of people are like, it's like bringing away the liveness of theatre and it's it's um, distracting that. 
but what's cinetheater? Cinetheater is uh, it's really I don't really know how to describe it other than the fact that it's like a mix between cinema and theater. Um, so it's an experience that draws on the two forms in various ways. Usually, it involves an audience sitting down watching something and and what levels are live and what levels are pre-filmed or what levels are live filmed are various and, you know, could be anything. Um, yeah. So from, some, the audience, about that. from the audience perspective, they're all still seated in the theatre conventionally and then it's just a mixture of what they're actually viewing, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a mix of, yeah, there might be a screen on stage and that could be... Um, it could be a, a, a scene that's pre-filmed or live filmed. I'm more interested in the live filmed element. Um, and it's sort of, yeah, it's just, it's a new form. And I think it's pretty exciting that I've seen more things happening. And, and yeah, I just, I'm still curious about it. And I know I'm a firm believer that if something's like really pushing like me and, and, feeling curious after a while I know that it's something I need to explore um and it's also exciting because I'm, I'm always so inspired by film and the the wonderful way that it can um really frame different things differently I really want this having... I really want this cowboy story to come to life for you it sounds absolutely <laughs> incredible and it yeah. could be a movie as well, couldn't it? Yeah, it could I imagine a uh, Australian Priscilla Queen of the Desert femme cowboy reimagining. Yeah, well, it's just it's it's a thing. Like you think about the Western genre as well. I'm really interested in, in working with the genres of like fantasy and Western, and I love that just because there's so it's so rich in kind of aesthetics and styles that you can borrow from, but. You think about any westerns that involve women or like you know not, not men and yeah, it's not many. Just, there's not many <laughs> like and I think I think yeah exploring that is interesting in itself and a yeah investigating an archetype a lot of chauvinism and machismo and then you, you sort of see a woman <laughs> with a shotgun behind the bar and that's it and she's still in the yeah. service role <laughs> yeah exactly yeah I want to I want to bring them to the front. You know, what what happens when you give them a horse on a lasso and, you know, a quest. <laughs> that That's really awesome. What would be your next steps into making that dream a reality, do you think? Oh, I um, I have a development planned for, for this coming year to work on it. So a bit of concentrated time to sit down and and get some people attached to the project I think is is the next step of being like okay here's people I trust and people I want generous offers from and people I want to just bring into that process with me and yeah it would be getting a team together which is just odd because as a designer I'm usually part of that team that the director will bring on or the producer will bring the team together so yeah bit of bit of my own um you know planning myself and and taking the lead with that a bit but I just have to make sure I don't get too busy and that doesn't become on the back burner yeah for sure oh we've just had another text message come in another good question your profession is really unique what advice can you give to a young person who would like to get into the industry oh advice for young people 
I think the way I fell into this work wasn't like I didn't know I wanted to be a designer until I kind of did it or or, or, or was part of a process where I, I saw that I saw a process being made so I think my best advice would be always always surround yourself with what you're inspired by I think secondly is trust in your instincts and learn to curate your own eye like learn what you like and and really develop that I think a really important part of being a designer is also having an aesthetic or having something that sets you apart having something that is your bold thing that you uh uh um that kind of doesn't represent you as a whole but you know can kind of drive um your designs I think seeing as much work as possible, whatever you want, what you want to get into, if it's dance, if it's theater, if it's opera, seeing as much of it as you can, but also knowing that sometimes your best inspiration will come from a song or a movie or a color that you saw on the walk to your, I don't know, wherever you went that day. Like it can be anywhere. And then also is just meeting the right people is so important. So I reckon like, yeah, I think I didn't study a specialized course in it. I just sort of met the right people and kept working with them and, and just met more people through that. And so every project has just led to meeting more people and meeting more people and more opportunities. And I think it's all about having a connection to someone who can um, share their process with you, learn from other people's process. Yeah. That's really excellent advice and very much relevant also to any young architects and students and grads listening tonight as well. Really transferable across Mm. any design sector, I think. I wanted Mm. to ask, how did you find your way to set design? How did you know this was something you wanted to do? Yeah, um, I did a broad theatre and performance degree at uni. So I studied that within an arts degree at Monash University. Um, and I went into that thinking I wanted to do directing. So I wanted to direct theater, um, but I didn't want to do acting first. A lot of people would do acting first and then, but I wasn't a fan of acting and wasn't very good at it. So I decided to do this course and then did literature within that and also studied digital humanities within that. So it was a very, uh, broad course that I think being the self-driven person that I was, I just, I, I I took subjects that I thought were interesting and, and ended up loving most of them and then also did um, some internships within my degree. And one of them was uh, at the Malt House so that was organised within the uni. Um, unfortunately, the theatre and performance major that I did doesn't exist anymore, which is a real shame. But... Um, yeah, it was through the internships that I really met the right people. I, I did a stage management one first, and then, um, and then in third year I was working with a director who connected me with this designer, and then I started working with, I started a second internship with this designer, and, um, 
and that was my first foray I was like I had done some design things and I had done a zoom show that I I learned how to 3d model for the zoom show because I was making all these virtual backgrounds for it and all the actors wore these like augmented reality animal masks and it was crazy. It was a crazy cyber planet that I just spent so much time on because I was in lockdown and I wanted to create it. And it was so fun. And I had a good rapport with that director. So, yeah, she was like, sat me down, was like, I'm working with all of these shows. Like, let me know what you want to do with me. And like, I just said that was my self source internship. And so that was um, director Cassandra Fumi, who's an incredible um, director. And so she linked me up with Dan Barber, who's the designer that I worked a lot with recently. And he, I did my first internship with him with, on a little indie show called The Mermaid, which was a reimagining of Little Mermaid with a bunch of teenagers, which was just so special. <laughs> um, and I loved that process. And yeah, after that, I just kept getting work as, as an associate and I was just, I was, yeah, I have to be in that position to just learn everything and make the mistakes. And luckily I was given that outside of it, outside of having to do a uni course. So in a weird way, I feel like I've had, I've had a, an apprenticeship or something, or I've just learned on the job, like a craft or a tradesman. So it's, it's a funny way of learning, but I think, I think it's allowed me to yeah just really quickly like build a folio and and learn by doing because the industry is fast-paced and and it requires a lot of hard work and yeah it's just a lot that I've learned since then amazing that's incredibly impressive you already have so so quickly such an extensive resume of shows you've been involved in that seem to only be growing and growing from from strength to strength I want to ask, how's the arts sector doing in Melbourne at the moment and Australia more broadly since uh, the lockdowns? And yeah, it's interesting. Um, I don't know too much at a at a wide angle. I think um, in the current place I work at, there's a lot of uh, older people, and they've been telling me about how the industry was or has been, and what they think is going to happen, and there might be a recession and that there's not going to be any work anymore. And that makes me feel like I need to take more work now and like just take all the work I can get. Um, but I'm also worried that, you know, and it, like you just got to conserve your energy and know your capacity really. Um, I think I, I don't know what the sector ha- like feels like and looks like other than after COVID. Um, Cause I've only experienced this like massive rush and things happening again. And then playing catch up with all of the things that were delayed, and um, I think, I think it's 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 still rough in the independent sector just because there's never enough time and money or support for things, uh, unfortunately, um, and it just means that I I don't know for how long, but I, I I have to have a second job to keep and to make ends meet and to pay rent. Um, it's just. It, it's just too much pressure to put on design work for most of my money. And it's just, I don't, I don't want to have to take jobs that doesn't feel right for me to take them. And I've experienced what it's like to take a job where um, it's not actually, 
I wasn't the right designer for it or I just hadn't hadn't had enough time and yeah it's just about keeping your integrity in that way of just being like can I do work like can I honestly see myself working on this and can I give it the the energy and time that it deserves and yeah just asking all of those questions so for me I have a really personal relation to that in terms of the industry and how I say yes to a project or say no to a project and I don't take that lightly at all I think um but I think someone a designer has to really weigh up those decisions because you only know you only have so much energy and I think it's it's precious <laughs> to to especially when it's it's such creative work you have to know that it's not finite <laughs> mm. um but yeah the industry as a whole I think it's there's just a lot of problems in in the way that I hear burnout a lot and I see it and uh, I worry about my friends and when they're just doing so much and I I know that they're amazing and they'll do it but yeah it's like finding that finding that care and that joy in it despite the challenges and and also just being clear on like why we're doing it I think if it's so hard and like you know it's it's hard to really make it sustainable I think it needs it Mm. takes so much conscious effort to make it sustainable yeah so so many parallels with architecture and architectural practice and what the decisions Mm. a lot of professionals have to make what is a litmus test for you is there is there one particular question you ask yourself that helps that helps unlock that decision for you whether or not to run with the job yeah I think first of all I look at my calendar and I'm like (laughs) okay this job will finish on this date. This is when it opens and I might be doing some maintenance or like on standby for things for a bit after that when the show's on. Um, although like I'll sort of, yeah, know vaguely the blocks of where the shows are and I'll be like, can I actually fit this into time? And sometimes I've said yes to things just because it's an incredible team and it's like really experienced people that I want to work with. And in that case, I will do anything. <laughs> like, I, yes, I will design a show for you in a week with a tiny budget for this opera. Like, I'll do it. Um, because I, I want to just take that opportunity. And it felt right. I think it comes down to feeling for me as well. <laughs> but, um, yeah, sort of really measuring up the different things, how much budget there is, how much the fee is. I also think about um and then also most of all I need to think about like is the work interesting to me does it does it pique my curiosity does it feel like something I'm interested in does it feel like a story I'm interested in telling um can I do something interesting with it and and also the team the team really makes it if it's new people I like it's it's about whether you know I like their previous work and if it's people I've worked with before, it's like, you know, you, you have a shared language there. You've collaborated for this trust. Um, Do you have a favourite project you've worked on or are they all your babies? Oh, my gosh. It's so every, – every one of them has been so different and I've learned so much, like, just from each project. Um, I think most – my most recent show was really special to me. It was called Staunch – um 
Staunches F, and it was in the Melbourne Fringe Festival at the Black Lodge with um, First Nations choreographer Amelia Jean O'Leary. And that was really special because I, I just, I burnt out really badly on uh, just that month and I was exhausted and I, I just wanted to find a way to like have fun again and, and find joy and pleasure and find out why I was doing this and why I loved it. And that show for me was like really, really that it was, it was like, I was, I felt like I was healing my relationship with it again in some way after I had just created a, a real jungle for myself out mm. there. Um, so they're all so special to me, but I think that one and that team and that story and the time that that show was on, Amelia's show was on right during the referendum. And I just knew that it was such an important story to tell and to believe in that and to also be invested in um, a creative's career and and to just feel that that collaboration and that trust in that collaboration was just so beautiful. Um, and also I, that was a time where I had I had the time to like be so hands-on with it as well. Sometimes I don't have time to be like painting a costume and art finishing everything or um, getting things exactly how I want to. And and this time the the, the textures were really strong in terms of the materials I used and, and everything was found or re recycled, repurposed. And, and I was confident in the way that it, it looked and the way that it would appear in the space. So yeah, I was just really happy with how it turned out and the world that it created with the story. Um, and it was just such a, like a special experience. We, we sat down into my living room one evening and Amelia showed us how to weave the weave that she learned on country mm. and that was an integral part of the process because I didn't want to just like braid it or do it in any way like to know that I, I had learned this she'd passed that knowledge on to us and we just sat down eating burgers in my living room just weaving this like beautiful swamp that was around her on the set so I That's think special. that yeah it's creating those special moments um and sharing the process with other people um inviting people into the kind of craftness of it it's always nice when you have people to share that with um but yeah incredibly special I want to ask what's exciting you about theatre in Melbourne at the moment what's coming up on the horizon anything listeners should be looking out for other than your upcoming show with Victorian Opera um oh. What is exciting about Melbourne theatre right now? I think I think we're in an interesting space where there's a lot happening. Like there is a lot and uh, it's exciting, all the different things that are happening and all, all that's being created. I think it's also exciting that... Um, Huh. I think what's most exciting to me is is I'm stumped because I want to answer this in a way that's like I'm excited because I I'm excited for the possibilities of where things are going. Mm. But I don't I can't I can't forecast it just because there's so many different pockets of theater and performance and stuff in the city and 
so many different people that value different things. Like, um, I'm just interested in, in, in a world where the design of a show is, is, is bold and risky and interesting. And I think Europe has, has got it going on in terms of just the aesthetic of, of some shows in particular. They've just, they've, they've done the big things. And I think, and I think a lot of, I take a lot of inspiration from like designers over there just because it is, it, they make bold choices and I'm excited to see more of that happening here. Um, and, awesome. and I think they're the most interesting things. Yeah. That leads very smoothly into my final question that I always like to ask is what gives you hope? Mm. In general, in life, in existential. All of the above. <laughs> all, all of, of the, the above. above. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. What gives me hope? Hope for what? Is it hope in general? <laughs> However you wish to define it. Oh, okay. People have answered that question in many, many different ways on the show. Can you just ask me the question again? What What gives what, you hope? What gives me hope? Um... Honestly, <laughs> a good poem, <laughs> and and that's something I actually haven't talked about yet. But I'll sneak it in now because it's the last question. But the 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 poetry that I can find in like every day, and the poetry that we end up creating, and the metaphors that we make in an object, and in a set, or in a costume, and the create the creative energy and the creative process behind that I think I think I think poetry in general gives me hope because it's about it's about unearthing the layers underneath things and 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 seeing a different perspective and and listening in a different way um or being invited to in a in a beautiful way being able to be super specific on a detail and and think about that um I think poems in a written form give me so much of that hope of just like oh yeah I've never thought about a flower in that way or or or, or an orange or a fruit like it's very specific things and poetry and anything I think opens up uh space for for possibilities for possibilities exactly I love all that so much What a wonderful note to end on. Thank you so much for your time this evening, Savannah. Thank you, Alana. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me for another evening of Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash. This live show was broadcast and recorded in the Radio Carrium studio on Bonnarong Country. You can replay this show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Community Radio. Take care. Hi, I'm Disco Day from London, England, and whenever I'm in Australia, and in fact, even when I'm not online, I'll listen to Radio Caram.